Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Hello, my Mysterians and all my other friends. Welcome back to Terry's Mysterious Moments. The end of a promising method of transportation occurred in Lakehurst, New Jersey, with the violent death of Zeppelin, LZ-129. LZ-129, which we better know as the Hindenburg, was a German commercial passenger carrying rigid airship. This was the lead ship of the Hindenburg class, the longest class of flying machine and the largest airship by envelope volume. It was designed and built by the Zeppelin company and was operated by the German Zeppelin Airline Company. It was named after Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg, who was president of Germany from 1925 until his death in 1934. It caught fire and was destroyed during its attempt to dock with its mooring mast at Naval Air Station Lakehurst, New Jersey. The accident caused 35 fatalities, there were 13 passengers and 22 crewmen from the 97 people on board. There were 36 passengers and 61 crewmen total and an additional fatality on the ground. The disaster was the subject of newsreel coverage, photographs, and Herbert Morrison's recorded radio eyewitness reports from the landing field including the oft-repeated, emotionally charged, Oh, the Humanity, which were broadcast the next day. A variety of theories have been put forward for both the cause of ignition and the initial fuel for the ensuing fire. The publicity shattered public confidence in the giant passenger-carrying rigid airship and marked the abrupt end of the airship era, as one would imagine. The Hindenburg had made 10 successful trips to the United States in 1936 after opening its 1937 season by completing a single round-trip passage to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in late March. The Hindenburg departed from Frankfurt, Germany on the evening of May 3rd on the first of 10 round trips between Europe and the United States that were scheduled for its second year of commercial service. American Airlines had contracted with the operators of the Hindenburg to shuttle the passengers from Lakehurst to Newark for connections to airplane flights. Except for the strong headwinds that slowed its progress, the Atlantic crossing of the Hindenburg was unremarkable until the airship attended an early evening landing at Lakehurst three days later on May 6th. 
Although carrying only half its full capacity of passengers, 36 of 70, and crewmen, 61 including 21 crewmen trainees, during the flight accident, the Hindenburg was fully booked for its return flight. Many of the passengers with tickets to Germany were planning to attend the coronation of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth in London the following week. The airship was hours behind schedule when it passed over Boston on the morning of May 6th, and its landing at Lakehurst was expected to be further delayed because of afternoon thunderstorms. Advised of the poor weather conditions at Lakehurst, Captain Max Pruss charted a course over Manhattan Island, causing a public spectacle as people rushed out into the street to catch sight of the airship. After passing over the field at 4 p.m., Captain Pruss took passengers on a tour over the seashore of New Jersey while waiting for the weather to clear. After finally being notified at 6.22 p.m. that the storms had passed, Pruss directed the airship back to Lakehurst to make its landing almost a half a day late. As this would leave much less time than anticipated to service and prepare the airship for its scheduled departure back to Europe, the public was informed that they would not be permitted at the mooring location or be able to visit aboard the Hindenburg during its stay in port. Around 7 p.m. local time, at an altitude of 650 feet, the Hindenburg made its final approach to the Lakehurst Naval Air Station. This was to be a high landing, known as a flying moor because the airship would drop its landing ropes and mooring cable at a high altitude and then be winched down to the mooring mast. This type of landing maneuver would reduce the number of ground crewmen, but would require more time. Although the high landing was a common procedure for American airships, the Hindenburg had performed this maneuver only a few times in 1936 while landing in Lakehurst. At 7.09 p.m., the airship made a sharp, full-speed left turn to the west around the landing field because the ground crew was not ready. At 7.11 p.m. it turned back toward the landing field and valved gas. All engines idled ahead and the airship began to slow. Captain Pruss ordered aft engines full astern at 7.14 while at an altitude of 394 feet to try to break the airship. At 7.17 the wind shifted direction from east to southwest, and Captain Pruss ordered a second sharp turn starboard, making an S-shaped flight path toward the mooring mast. At 7.18, as the final turn progressed, Pruss ordered 660 pounds, then another 660 pounds, and then 1,100 pounds of water ballast in successive drops because the airship was stern heavy. The forward gas cells were also valved. As these measures failed to bring the ship in trim, six men, three of whom were killed in the accident, were then sent to the bow to trim the airship. At 7.21 p.m., while the Hindenburg was at an altitude of 290 
five feet. The mooring lines were dropped from the bow. The starboard line was dropped first, followed by the port line. The port line was over-tightened as it was connected to the post of the ground winch. The starboard line still had not been connected. A light rain began to fall as the crew grabbed the mooring lines. At 7.25, a few witnesses saw the fabric ahead of the upper fin flutter as if gas was leaking. Others reported seeing a dim blue flame, possibly static electricity or St. Elmo's fire, moments before the fire on top and in the back of the ship near the point where the flames first appeared. Several other eyewitness testimonies suggest that the first flame appeared on the port side just ahead of the port fin and was followed by flames that burned on top. Commander Rosendahl testified to the flames in front of the upper fin being mushroom-shaped. One witness on the starboard side reported a fire beginning lower and behind the rudder on that side. On board, people heard a muffled detonation and those in the front of the ship felt a shock as the port trail rope over tightened. The officers in the control car initially thought the shock was caused by a broken rope. At 7.25 p.m. local time, the Hindenburg caught fire and quickly became engulfed in flames. Eyewitness statements disagree as to where the fire initially broke out. Several witnesses on the port side saw yellow-red flames first jump forward of the top fin near the ventilation shaft of cells 4 and 5. Other witnesses on the port side noted the fire actually began just ahead of the horizontal port fin, only then followed by flames in front of the upper fin. One, with views of the starboard side, saw flames beginning lower and farther aft near cell 1 behind the rudders. Inside the airship, helmsman Helmut Lau, who was stationed in the lower fin, testified hearing a muffled detonation and looked up to see a bright reflection on the front bulkhead of gas cell 4, which suddenly disappeared by the heat. As other gas cells started to catch fire, the fire spread more to the starboard side and the ship dropped rapidly. Although the landing was being filmed by cameramen from four newsreel teams and at least one spectator, with numerous photographers also being at the scene, no footage or photographs are known to exist of the moment the fire started. The flames quickly spread forward, first consuming cells one to nine, and the rear end of the structure imploded. Almost instantly, two tanks and it is disputed whether they contained water or fuel, burst out of the hull as a result of the shock of the blast. Buoyancy was lost on the stern of the ship and the bow lurched upwards while the ship's back broke. The falling stern stayed in trim. As the tail of the Hindenburg crashed into the ground, a burst of flame came out of the nose, killing nine of the twelve crewmen in the bow. There was still gas in the bow section of the ship, so it continued to point upward as the stern collapsed down.
The cell behind the passenger decks ignited as the side collapsed inward, and the scarlet lettering reading Hindenburg was erased by flames as the bow descended. The airship's gondola wheel touched the ground, causing the bow to bounce up slightly as one final gas cell burned away. At this point, most of the fabric on the hull had also burned away, and the bow finally crashed to the ground. Although the hydrogen had finished burning, Hindenburg's diesel fuel burned for several more hours. In the face of this catastrophe, Chief Petty Officer Frederick J. Bull Tobin, in command of the Navy landing party for the airship, and a survivor of the crashed American military airship USS Shenandoah, shouted the famous order, Navy men, stand fast! to successfully rally his personnel to conduct rescue operations despite the considerable danger from the flames. The time that it took from the first signs of disaster to the bow crashing to the ground is reported as 32, 34, or 37 seconds. Since none of the newsreel cameras were filming the airship when the fire first started, the time of the start can only be estimated from various eyewitness accounts and the duration of the longest footage of the crash. One careful analysis by NASA's Addison Bain gives the flame front spread rate across the fabric skin as about 49 feet per second at some points during the crash, which would have resulted in a total destruction time of about 16 seconds. Some of the Duralumin framework of the ship was salvaged and sent back to Germany, where it was recycled and used in the construction of military aircraft for the Luftwaffe, as were the frames of the LZ-127 Graf Zeppelin and LZ-130 Graf Zeppelin II when both were scrapped in 1940. In the days after the disaster, an official board of inquiry was set up at Lakehurst to investigate the cause of the fire. The investigation by the U.S. Commerce Department was headed by Colonel South Trimble, Jr., while Hugo Eckner led the German Commission. The disaster was well documented. Heavy publicity about the first transatlantic passenger flight of the year by Zeppelin to the United States had attracted a large number of journalists to the landing. Thus, many news crews were on site at the time of the airship exploding, and so there was a significant amount of newsreel coverage and photographs, as well as Herbert Morrison's recorded eyewitness report for the radio station WLS in Chicago, a report that was broadcast the next day. Radio broadcasts were not recorded at the time. However, an audio engineer in Morrison had chosen the arrival of the Hindenburg to experiment with recording for delayed broadcast, and thus Morrison's narration of the disaster was preserved. Parts of Morrison's broadcast were later dubbed onto newsreel footage. That gave the impression that the words and the film were recorded together, but that wasn't the case. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and um, 
They've been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. It's The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It's burst into flames. Get this, Charlie. Get this. It's fire. And it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out... Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and the it's falling on the mooring mast and all the folks between it. This is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's it's flames crashing. Oh, oh, four five hundred feet into the sky. It's a ter- ter- terrific crash. Ladies and gentlemen, there's smoke and there's flames now, and the frame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mast. Oh, the humanity. And all the passengers screaming around here. I told you, I can't even talk, people. Their friends are here. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I just can't talk, ladies and gentlemen, honest. It's just laying there, a mass of smoking wreckage. And, Everybody can hardly breathe and talk in the screaming. Uh, I'm sorry, honest. I can hardly breathe. I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. Charlie, that's terrible. I I can't. Listen, folks. I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost my voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. The newsreel footage was shot by four newsreel camera teams. Cafe News, Movie Tone News, Hearst News of the Day, and Paramount News. Al Gold of Fox Movie Tone News later received a presidential citation for his work, one of the most widely circulated photographs of the disaster, showing the airship crashing with the mooring mast in the foreground, was photographed by Sam Shear of international news photo photos. When the fire started, he did not have time to put the camera to his eye and shot the photo from the hip, as they say. Murray Becker of Associated Press f- photographed the fire engulfing the airship while it was still on even keel using his 4x5 speed graphic camera. His next photograph shows flames bursting out of the nose as the bow telescoped upwards. In addition to professional photographers, spectators also photographed the crash. They were stationed in the spectators area near hangar number one and had a side rear view of the airship. Customs broker Arthur Kofod Jr. and 16-year-old Fu Chu both had Leica cameras with high-speed film, allowing them to take a larger number of photographs than the press photographers. Nine of Kofod's photographs were printed in Life magazine, while Chu's photographs were shown in the New York Daily News. The newsreels and photographs, along with Morrison's passionate recording, shattered public and industry faith in airships and marked the end of the giant passenger-carrying airships. Also contributing to the downfall of Zeppelin's was the arrival of international passenger air travel and Pan American Airlines.
heavier-than-air aircraft regularly cross the Atlantic and Pacific much faster than the 80 mile per hour speed of the Hindenburg. The one advantage that the Hindenburg had over such aircraft was the comfort offered its passengers. In contrast to the media coverage in the United States, media coverage of the disaster in Germany was more subdued. Although some photographs of the disaster were published in newspapers, the newsreel footage was not released until after World War II. German victims were memorialized in a similar manner to fallen war heroes, and grassroots movement to fund Zeppelin construction, as happened after the 1908 crash of the LZ-4, were expressly forbidden by the Nazi government. There have been a series of other airship accidents prior to the Hindenburg fire. Many were caused by bad weather. The Graf Zeppelin had flown safely for more than one million miles, including the first circumnavigation of the globe by an airship. The Zeppelin company's promotions had prominently featured the fact that no passenger had been injured on any of its airships. There were a total of 35 deaths out of 97 people on the airship, including 13 of the 36 passengers and 22 of the 61 crew. Most survivors were severely burned. Among the killed was also one ground crewman, the civilian linesman, Alan Hageman. 10 passengers and 16 crewmen died in the crash or in the fire. The majority of the victims were burned to death while others died jumping from the airship at an excessive height or as a consequence of either smoke inhalation or falling debris. Six other crew members, three passengers, and Alan Hageman died in the following hours or days, mostly as a result of burns. The majority of the crewmen who died were up inside the ship's hull, where they either did not have a clear escape route or were close to the bow of the ship, which hung burning in the air for too long for most of them to escape death. Most of the crew in the bow died in the fire, although at least one was filmed falling from the bow to his death. Most of the passengers who died were trapped in the starboard side of the passenger deck. Not only was the wind blowing the fire toward the starboard side, but the ship also rolled slightly to starboard as it settled to the ground, with much of the upper hull on that part of the ship collapsing outside the starboard observation windows and that cut off the escape of many of the passengers on that side. To make matters worse, the sliding door leading from the starboard passenger area to the central foyer and the gangway stairs though through which rescuers led a number of passengers to safety jammed shut during the crash, further trapping those passengers on the starboard side. Nonetheless, some did manage to escape from the starboard passenger decks by contrast, all but a few of the passengers on the port side of the ship survived the fire, with some of them escaping virtually unscathed. Although the best-remembered airship disaster, it was not the worst. Just over twice as many, 73 of 76 on board, had perished when the helium-filled U.S. Navy scout airship USS Akron crashed at sea off the New Jersey coast four years earlier on April 4, 1933. 
Werner Franz, the 14-year-old cabin boy, was initially dazed on realizing the ship was on fire, but when a water tank above him burst open, putting out the fire around him, he was spurred to action. He made his way to a nearby hatch and dropped through it just as the forward part of the ship was briefly rebounding into the air. He began to run toward the starboard side but stopped and turned around and ran the other way because the wind was pushing the flames in that direction. He escaped without injury and was the last surviving crew member when he died in 2014. The last survivor, Werner Donor, died November 8th of 2019. At the time of the disaster, Donor was eight years old and vacationing with family. He recalls later that his mother threw him and his brother out of the ship and jumped after them. They survived, but Donor's father and sister were killed. When the control car crashed into the ground, most of the officers leapt through the windows but became separated. First Officer Captain Albert Sampt found Captain Max Proust trying to re-enter the wreckage to look for survivors. Proust's face was badly burned and he required months of hospitalization and reconstructive surgery, but he survived. Captain Ernst Lehmann escaped the crash with burns to his head and arms and severe burns across most of his back. He died at a nearby hospital the next day. When passenger Joseph Spey, a vaudeville comic acrobat, billed as Ben Dova, saw the first sign of trouble, he smashed the window with his movie camera with which he had been filming the landing, and the film survived the disaster. As the ship neared the ground, he lowered himself out the window and hung on the window ledge, letting go when the ship was perhaps 20 feet above the ground. His acrobat's instincts kicked in kept his feet under him and attempted to do a safety roll when he landed. He injured his ankle nonetheless and was dazedly crawling away when a member of the ground crew came up, slung the diminutive spay under one arm and ran him clear of the fire. As I've said before, of the 12 crewmen in the bow of the ship, only three survived. Four of these 12 men were standing on the mooring shelf, a platform up at the very tip of the bow from which the forwardmost landing ropes and the steel mooring cable were released to the ground crew and which was directly at the forward end of the axial walkway and just ahead of gas cell number 16. The rest were standing either along the lower keel walkway ahead of the control car or else on platforms beside the stairway leading up the curve of the bow to the mooring shelf. During the fire, the bow hung in the air at roughly a 45 degree angle and flames shot forward through the axial wallway, bursting through the bow and the bow gas cells like a blowtorch. The three men from the forward section who survived were elevator man Kurt Bauer, cook Alfred Grosinger, and electrician Joseph Leibrecht were, were those furthest aft of the bow, and two of them Bauer and Grosinger happened to be standing near two large triangular air vents through which cool air was being drawn by the fire. Neither of these men sustained more than superficial burns. Most of the men standing along the bow stairway either fell aft into the fire or tried to leap from the ship when it was still too high in the air. 
three of the four men standing on the morning shelf inside the very tip of the bow were actually taken from the wreck alive, though one, Eric Spell, a rigger, died shortly afterwards in the air station's infirmary, and the other two, helmsman Alfred Bernard and apprentice elevatorman Ludwig Felber, were reported by newspapers to have initially survived the fire and then subsequently have died at area hospitals during the night or the following morning. Hydrogen fires, of which the Zeppelin was loaded with hydrogen, are less destructive to immediate surroundings than gasoline explosions because of the buoyancy of diatomic hydrogen, which causes heat of combustion to be released upwards rather than around as the leaked mass ascends in the atmosphere. Hydrogen fires are more survivable than fires of gasoline or wood. The hydrogen within the Hindenburg burned out within about 90 seconds. It's sad about the Hindenburg. It was a beautiful ship. But in all honesty, it was unnecessary because there was a limited number of passengers that could be taken on board, and you had a constant fear of perhaps the hydrogen catching fire. What happened to the Hindenburg, we'll never know. There's no way to check. So we'll just remember it. We'll pay honor to those who died on board and the one man who died below and say Godspeed. I hope you enjoyed it. A little bit of information I found interesting. What's mysterious about this? How it happened. Was it sabotage? Could be. Was it weather related? Was it spurred on by the paint that they had on the skin of the Hindenburg that was supposed to be weatherproofing but turned out to be highly flammable? I don't know, and like I said, we'll, ne we'll never know. Well, have a great week, everybody. Come back to hear us next week. Have a good time.